interesting topic. You know, if you ask me this question, I'm happy to answer it, but maybe the answer takes one hour. <laughs> <laughs> I will need the too long, don't read <laughs> version of it. I think we are live, aren't we? Just a minute. Uh, I see a button that says live on Facebook, yeah. No, so maybe we are. We'll let Mary decide on that. I'll start waving just in case. <laughs> I, 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 I've never watched um, something live on Facebook. No. Mary's so we are officially live and welcome to Scale Up Valley podcast. Today we have not just one one unicorn, but two unicorns. So today's show is about scaling engineering with Pedro, engineering director at TalkDesk, and Stan, co-founder and CTO at Culibra. Culibra. Okay, thank you so much, Pedro. Please kick off the show. And thank you. If this sounds interesting, stay here until the end. Exactly. Thank you so much, Mary, um, for the introductions. And, and also very important, um, this is not the first session of, uh, of, our, of our podcast. So you know, all know scaleupvalley.com. So it's, it's, if it is your first time here, so it's the place to be if you want to learn with people that are doing it or they have done it in the past of kind of having the ability to actually to create a startup and to bring to this stage of scaling up. And obviously we have a lot of shows. So we talk about product, marketing, talent. Today's session is about engineering uh, and to talk a little bit about engineering um, and also obviously all the bits and bobs of, of scaling up. We have Stan with us from, uh, from Calibra. So Stan is based in Belgium. Although he lived previously in New York, uh, I'm assuming that because obviously of starting up uh, Calibra and uh, you know in startup life, we really need to go where you need to be in order to make sure that you're successful. Um, so, um, Stan, uh, we took a look to to your to your career path. You're a founder, which is, I think, it's pretty much the first time we have someone that that was kind of one of the creators of the company that we are having in this show. So that's that's amazing. Um, so, so tell us, um, you're the CTO of the company. Uh, you were previously the C COO, so you're a co-founder. Um, so. Tell me a little bit more about the responsibilities that you have at, uh, at Colibra that I imagine they are quite a lot. Um, yeah, and they, they've, they've varied. Um, thanks, Pedro, and um, uh, thanks for um, hosting this, uh, this event. Um, yeah, if I, if I look at uh, Colibra, the founding of it, then my responsibilities, you have to understand it's been uh, 11 years now, right? So we've started the company in 2008. Um, June 2008, so now we are uh, June 2019, so that's yeah. 11 years, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, honestly, I think in, in 11 years, so many things change, of course, <laughs> especially in technology. The last couple of years have been crazy in, in the market and in general and in, in, in our company as well. But I think we have at least another decade of work to do with Colibra because, you know, data is so important and organizations are just struggling to really manage it as an asset. 
you know, most of the time is still spent by business analysts and data scientists and, and whatever. It's still spent uh, on searching for the data that the company has. Um, now, my responsibility, so as you mentioned, I shifted uh, a little bit or my title shifted. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, when we started the company, uh, we were four people, uh, so four founders. Um, and you know, to a large degree, we didn't know what we were doing, right? We were very young, uh, you know, s- studying and doing PhD in, in the university. And then we started an enterprise software company, essentially. Uh, so, you know, we can imagine how many things we had to learn along the way. And yeah. honestly, that still continues. But uh, specifically about my responsibilities, because the other founders had other ones. Uh, so for 2008 to 2014, I think, uh, the first period uh, of Calibra, uh, my title was the chief operating officer. And then after that, my title was the chief technology officer. Um, so as a chief operating officer, you know, in the first year, everybody's coding. Everybody's, <laughs> yeah, no matter what. Everybody's doing everything. <laughs> Um, but then as soon as you start to get a little bit of uh, traction in the market, uh, you know, we get a first customer, a second customer. So you're doubling, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, things start changing and slowly some, you know, responsibilities start to shape. So for me, my uh, COO role was very field focused in the sense that I was responsible for all of the pre-sales. So technical sales, mm-hmm. uh, doing proof of concepts, demos, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, with very early software. So you can imagine what that looks like. Uh, and then I was also responsible for post-sales, which is, you know, professional services, the implementation at the customer uh, after the customer has become a customer. Um, and again, these two are easy to combine in the beginning because you have no customers when you start. So there's no implementations needed yet. But then, you know, we have one and so on. And then I also had a responsibility for partnerships. So, you know, connections to other technology companies, but also, um, you know, Calibra, we're very much in, an, in a bigger ecosystem. You know, we have our software and we have some of our own professional services, but we cannot do everything ourselves. Uh, you know, our market is global, our companies are large. So typically they, they require strong, big project teams, oftentimes across the world. So we work together with the smallest boutique consulting firms who do, for example, strategy consulting and information management or data governance or something like this. And then we have uh, partnerships all the way to the, the, the biggest, you know, the big four and the Accentures and so on of the world. So Calibra's partner system is, is all of those. And again, in those early years, uh, for them to be a partner means you're just meeting them from time to time. You're not really necessarily doing a lot of business together yet. Um, but then what happened for me that my role shifted. So as you said, in the beginning, uh, I was in New York for four years, uh, 2014 to 2018. And uh, this is about all about going where, where you need to be, right? And for us, uh, you know, we're a Belgian company. We started in Belgium. So, you know, we tried to do some business in Europe at first. But when you look at the market, of the uh, of the US it's one big unified market yes absolutely the fragment yeah the fragmentation in Europe it just makes it harder um, and you know we started seeing attraction in the US and we realized okay we'll probably be able to um, better tackle that market when we actually have a physical presence 
because yeah. everybody's always asking, right? Where is your office? And so on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, personally, you know, I was traveling so much that after five years, my wife was saying, you know, this, this doesn't work. So also personally, it was better for me to move because then, you know, there would be less travel. Yeah. Uh, because if you travel in the U.S., it's, it's easier, right? Yes. So I moved into the U.S. and it was a very difficult year. Uh, because there were zero people there, you know, and then I came and then, you know, we found two, one pre-sales, one sales, and then we had three people there. Now there's probably 120 people in the US. And um, it was hard because we had to build everything up there. Uh, but at the same time, we had to find people who knew what they were doing. Yes. So um, we found somebody, you know, I found somebody to take over my responsibilities for pre-sales, for professionals, for post-sales. Uh, and for alliances, and I had nothing left. So I'm like, okay, this is good. My work here is done. Good job well done. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you know, you're um, you're always trying to figure out how can I help with the business. So then my role shifted to a CTO. Um, and under the CTO role, there's really different frameworks, right? And we can talk about that for a bit. Um, but in inside Codibra, the responsibilities became, and again, many of these I have to had to build up again, right? I had to build up the teams. So the, the biggest priority was the product responsibility, which is things like product management and the roadmap, uh, user experience, a number of other things. Um, there was research and education, right? Because we're a very new market. So our customers have a lot of learning to do. Uh -huh. uh, so you need to scale that up. We had um, a marketplace, right? Because, again, because of the ecosystem. Uh, and then technology partnerships. Uh, for example, now we have technology partnerships with large companies like Tableau or AWS and, and many others, of course, also smaller ones. Um, these are all part of my responsibility since, let's say, end of 2014. Oh. And then just to finish that up, because, you know, Codibra, as, as you grow and, you know, you're, you, you called it a rocket ship, right? And I said, yeah. well, it's not a rocket ship because everybody has to pedal really hard. Um, so, you know, when you grow, the company changes a lot. And uh, in the last, let's say, six months or so, we had uh, some management updates also at Colibra. So we hired a, a chief product officer, a very uh, seasoned gym, a very seasoned, very experienced, very smart and knowledgeable person to take over my responsibilities on the product side. And we also hired um, uh, an SVP of engineering. Um, so again, I am at zero responsibilities right now as a CTO. Uh, and my next uh, thing that I'm trying to figure out now is, you know, when we say to our customers uh, that data is important, you know, and that you have to have a data office and achieve data office, et cetera, because it adds value to the business in this digital world, um, you know, then we've come to a certain size. We're now 500 people instead of four. Mm. So it's a very big difference. Yes. So now we've come to a size. And also data is important to us. So what I'm now trying to figure out is, okay, how can, you know, we learn about all the new data technologies that are out there that are adjacent to our space? You know, because so much is changing all the time. Everybody's going into the cloud right now with AWS, Azure, and Google. Um and I'm trying to figure out how do we then get value out of data ourselves in our organization. Yeah. So that's like a, a nutshell of history of my responsibilities over 11 years. Huh? 
No, no, that's amazing. 11, 11 years is quite, quite a lot. Uh, and, and if I may add, one thing that actually kind of stands out, it definitely is that, so you created the company when, I don't know if everyone that's listening to us realizes that, but it was during the, the crisis in Europe, right? So you, it was not easy. So I think that companies were struggling, even countries and all of that. And all of a the sudden, there you go and say, hey, I'm going to create a startup and let's see how it goes. Uh, that, that's pretty remarkable, right? And even more important, being in Europe, right? When we, we kind of start understanding that, just like you said, in the US, it's much easier to start than in Europe, right? Uh, yeah, it's... Um, you know, we did start in the crisis, and you know there are there are different definitely differences between Europe and um, and and the US. The crisis, I think, like I said, we didn't really know anything. We did we were not very experienced in starting something or building a company. So you know, you would think it's hard to start at the crisis, but actually, when you're starting something, starting in the in the crisis is easy because. Uh, it's not as if there is no more money being spent, right? And you really, it really makes you have to focus a lot harder because the money that is being spent is spent on things that are really necessary. Yeah. So it's in, in you know, from my experience, maybe I'm biased, but it was a good time for us to start, uh, especially because uh, 2012, as a consequence of the crisis, um, the BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, created a regulation called BCBS 239 that, ma- that sort of mandated that the big banks, the globally systematically important banks, had to have a chief data officer, which also happened to be our target, prime target audience. So in a way, the crisis created four years later the business driver that became a very important part of the initial growth of our business. Of course, now we do more, right? We cover both. And with respect to starting in... In uh, Europe versus in the US, uh, I don't know. I think it, my my perspective on this, Pedro, honestly, has become a perspective of um, orders of magnitude. So I'm from Belgium. We started in Belgium. Belgium has a population of 10 million people. It's not a big country. Um, now, think about this. Our market, of course, is a global market, but you have to start somewhere, right? So uh, if you have a market of 10 million people, Okay, but then you have Europe, which is supposed to be 300, 400 people, million, right? And then you have the US, which is also three, 400 million people. So imagine that you're building something and you can sell it to all the people in Belgium or you can sell it to all the people in US. That's an order of magnitude difference. And that determines you know, the, the scale you can achieve. You can never achieve the same scale in Belgium as in uh, the US because you're starting in a very different context. Of course, you can move to the US. And why is Europe, you know, Europe and, and the US, they're equally big in, in, in some ways, but also different in other ways because of their fragmentation. So that's, I think that's what makes it hard. Now, it's also 11 years ago. So starting up in Belgium was very different back then than it is now. If there was a, an event recently called the Big Squeeze, mm-hmm. um, I went there in Belgium. And I was, I was impressed. I was seeing at least 50 startups or, or you know, scale-ups to a certain degree there. Whereas when we started, it was a lot less. Yeah, when we yeah. started, uh, the amount of venture capital that was available in the market was this, and now it's this. So the conditions have certainly changed. Um, so would I start a company again in Belgium? Of course. Um, 
would I start it again in the US? Of course, they're, they're just different external conditions you have to deal with. Yeah, I agree. And to be honest, probably <coughs> Colibra actually had a, uh, a lot of, um, of uh, uh, intervention or a lot of, of these good things that happen in Belgium, right? Because when obviously the tech scene in the country can actually grow and evolve as soon as it starts giving good examples. So I'm pretty sure that uh, what you see today and all of these tech scene changing in Belgium, I'm pretty sure that Calibra actually kind of had a, a cut on that and, and helped the, the country actually to kind of to understand that there is more besides these classical traditional industries and that actually uh, quite young companies can actually make a difference and be, and be quite global. Right. I hope so. I hope so. If we can set an example uh, just by doing our business, then, you know, that would make me very happy because there is a lot of great talent. There is a lot of great knowledge. We have great universities. We have great technology. So there's really a lot of opportunity in um, in, in Belgium and in Europe uh, as a whole, of course. Yeah, I, I need to ask you this. So <clears throat> one thing that usually we see when, uh, you know, a, com a company in Europe uh, being Portugal, Spain, Belgium, in other country, um, one thing that we usually see is there is a lot of temptation to actually to move or to to create offices on the west coast. Okay, so usually San Francisco yeah. is a place to be, but actually, you guys you decided to go to to New York. Um, so I'm pretty sure that you have a lot of reasons to to do that, mainly uh, or namely the um, the time zones and all of that. Explain us a little bit what what made you go to New York uh, and not to the other coast. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and, you know, somebody asked me also this recently. And of course, you have to take my answer in context, right? Sure. You know, what is the best location for you and your business or your engineers or what have you really depends on, on, on your company, on your context. So for us, when we are a technology company, so when we were meeting people and we started talking, we we're moving to the U.S., they all said, oh, you have to move into the Bay Area, right? You have to move into Silicon Valley. That's where all the technology companies are. And in a way, it sounds exciting, right? Because Silicon Valley is, uh, you know, it's, it's nerd heaven, right? It's like, oh, every, <laughs> everything's happening there. So you want to go there. It sounds exciting. Of course, when you're actually driving through, it's not that exciting, right? It's like, oh, it's just trees and hills and... Okay, yeah. yeah. So there, and then you have the office of Apple and Google. So that's those are the exciting bits. That there's really big, huge technology firms there that are really making a lot of difference. But then, you know, so it was exciting and it was personally interesting. But for our business, you know, our for, in in those years, our uh, primary uh, customers were financial services, banks, insurance, uh, asset managers, things like this and um, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals. So if you look at the East Coast of um, the United States, New York has a big, big concentration of uh, financial services, uh, some pharmaceuticals as well, but then you go to New Jersey, there's more, same thing in Boston. So you have like a, a whole strip, uh, including you know, later federal uh, DC area. So you have a whole strip of concentrated business on the East Coast that is very, very different on the West Coast. So for us, business was a big driver. But then also, honestly, practically the, the time zones. Um, you know, working with Europe from New York is a six-hour difference. Yeah. Maybe you wake up early in the morning at six in New York. You can do a call. With, it's noon in Belgium. So, you know, that's fine. But you can continue until noon in New York and it's 6 p.m. In, in Belgium. So, okay, it's still fine. Maybe somebody stays a bit longer. 
but you don't want to have people start their day at 5 a.m. every day or stay until 11 p.m. every day. And the challenge in collaboration between, um, you know, if you have, let's say you have distributed teams, right? The challenge in yeah. collaboration between uh, Belgium and California is the nine-hour time difference. So there's only in in somebody's normal workday hours, nine to five, right? I'm simplifying. There's only one hour that really overlaps, which is the 5 p.m. in Brussels and the 8 a.m. or the 9 a.m. in in, um, in uh, California. So it, it really makes it hard to, to collaborate. For us, it was business as well as just the, the pragmatics of the, the time zones and the collaboration. Plus, you know, it's just... You've traveled there, right? It's yep. easy to travel to New York. You know, it's still a little bit of work, but it's a lot harder to travel to California. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> it's no, it's really, really hard. I don't know if everyone is aware because actually, to, to get to New York, it's it's a no-brainer, regardless of the country in Europe that you are. Uh, but yes, to get to the West Coast, it's it's a huge challenge. A lot of of hours of flying. Uh, you're probably going to need to go to London and to 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 go directly, or you need to go to Chicago to to change to another flight. So definitely going to New York makes everything much simpler. I, I totally agree. Yeah, it was fun being on the plane all the time because you know. <laughs> yeah, you could care. Yeah. Right. <laughs> No, absolutely. And tell me one thing. So one thing that you mentioned now that I actually uh, I believe that everyone's very interested in is. So I think that it's usually one thing that we, we it's almost like a pattern, right? So you're in Europe, you tend, you tend to open an office in, in the US um, and sooner or later, you're going to end up with this dilemma of having distributed teams. Um, usually you can have like engineering teams on both sides or product teams, or you have sales teams, regardless of the nature of the teams. The, the thing is you, you can't just have everything on one location because as soon as you are global, you're going to start to have more offices and more people to kind of to coordinate. Um, what what are the challenges kind of that you remember or like the scars that you have from from dealing with remote teams and and what do you believe that actually worked best for for Calibra in terms of collaborations? I think we, you mentioned a little bit about kind of the time zones and trying to search for overlapping hours. Um, do you have any more uh, tips and insights on that? Uh, yeah, uh, of course. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll also refer to, to my colleague Dieter, who is the, the v, VP of engineering, and he's, he's had this problems even, even more, but essentially it's, you know, to work remotely or to work distributedly, that's not something that we do. Although because of our global business, there is a lot of, you know, people in different offices having to collaborate. Um, and I think what, you know, I've, I've learned this from some of my uh, U.S. colleagues, the norming, storming and forming. When you're building new teams, you know, you're, you're forming them, right? So first there's the storming so that it's messy and then they're forming and then they're norming, it becomes standard. So it's just another way of saying that when you're working on different locations, even if they're in Belgium and you're all working in your home office, for example, what matters to me is that, you know, you're, you're trusting each other. So um, that's why I think it's important that when you first become a team, you really get to know each other, right? And you really work closely and almost inevitably there, you need strong face-to-face -face time, right? You need to get to know each other. You need to get the strengths and the weaknesses of the people, how they communicate, etc. And then it becomes a lot easier to, you know, not be together all the time. Uh, although you do want to be together from time to time, 
Yeah. Uh, because, you know, there are always things that happen at the coffee, co coffee cooler that don't happen with a Slack Kiffy, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> unless you really know each other. Um, so for us, what we've done with Codibra, uh, Dieter's preference was always uh, to keep the teams as close as possible. Uh, so we had the office in Brussels, which is still, uh, you know, half of our R&D office. And then in the very early days, we realized, okay, um, you know, scale-wise, you know, we may have to think about another office or, you know, just finding people fast enough, finding talent fast enough. So we um, at first started outsourcing, nearshoring, whatever you call it, into Poland, uh, in Wroclaw. Wroclaw. So this is... Phew, seven eight years ago you know we you know how it goes you start with one person and then two and so on um and then after a few years we we had so many people there that we actually turned it into an office ah we, all the people became part of Kodibra, and they actually have the coolest office uh, in in uh, Wroclaw. Wroclaw itself as a city has now also changed now there's a lot more people who will try to bring their it uh, over there so essentially our challenge uh on the r d side is only spread over two locations. But even then, you're already seeing those problems, right? There's no direct connection, for example, between Brussels and Wroclaw. So it's ah. a little bit messy to get between the locations. You need to have that, you know, exchange, especially as the company is, is growing, you know. Yep. One year, you're 30 people. Uh, the next year, you're 60 people. The next year, you're 100 <laughs> people. So nobody knows each other anymore. You don't yeah. know everybody's names anymore. You don't have any history with them. They just started their new faces so that really makes it hard and you it takes time to manage that um so you know that was our choice uh, to how we works we may open up a third office uh, at some point in time or a third engineering or change um you know to more fragmented engineering mm -hmm. but uh, then you start to notice that and, and dieter was explaining that it, you know it's also tied to how the software is architected together right so because we built out our product to a certain degree Parts of it are more like a monolith. And then it's very hard to say, okay, spread teams all, all over the world because they're all working on the same monolith. So we're, we're going through some re-architecture now where we're saying, okay, let's take this piece out, let's put it there, let's take this piece out, put it there. So they're more loosely coupled uh, in, in yeah. some way. And then yes. it's easier to say, okay, let's take this location and wherever. And there could be a three-man team or a 10-man team and they only work on that piece. So, you know, the... the the, the geography of geography of the teams is now also bound to the, the software product itself. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. I think that actually, if I'm not mistaken, it's called the Conway's law. Yep. But you know, kind of the architecture kind of almost shapes the, the company and the other way around and the company kind of, you know, the way that you structure a team is going to shape the architecture of the, your system. Yep. So actually yep. with the teams, it's something that obviously allows you to, to actually to leverage uh, um, a lot on, the, on, on this thing of kind of creating small pieces of systems that all of them combined, loosely coupled, just like you said, can actually deliver value to the, to the customers. Um, one thing that you just mentioned, and, and actually it kind of, uh, I can relate a lot to that. You mentioned change. Uh, you mentioned change quite a lot on, 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 on your previous answer. Um, and it, let's, let's face it, right? Colibri is already a big company, a unicorn, um, right? Um, is it fair to say that change is the only constant in the life of a scale-up? What's your take on that? 
I, I, well, it's not the only constant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's many other constants, but it's definitely, um, it's definitely true. It's always out there. Um, you know, just just think about the just think about this, right? And I forget the exact numbers. So some of some of the numbers that I'm saying are you know slightly wrong. For example, now we're 500 people. You know, like you said, we're not a small company anymore no. because when you're 500 people, you need you know the organizational structure, the, some management hierarchy, some policy, some process. That's very similar to a 2,000 man company, right? There's not a lot of difference there anymore. Um, but essentially, you know, one year ago, let's say we were 350 people, right? The year before, we were 150 people. Uh, the the first year in New York, 2014, uh, I think when we did our team event, because you know, because of we were growing so fast, we always did, we always took the whole company together in a team event. Mm-hmm. And in 2014, that was in um, Las Vegas. And I think the people that assembled there, we were 80 or 90 people. Uh, so you have to imagine that uh, you're adding all these people in short time while you're trying to figure out how to organize for all of this and you know plan for all the growth. So the change, the change is inevitable. It's almost there. I would even argue, Pedro, if you uh, don't plan for this change and if you're not mentally capable for this change, maybe sometimes even physically capable for this change because there's a lot of moving parts, yep. you will limit the growth of yourself, your team, and your organization. Uh, so, you, you, you know, awesome. f- for example, for my part, uh, okay, I have to deal with responsibilities changes, uh, you know, but the responsibility changes or the organizational changes and the value you want to add to the company also require you to learn new things, right? So I'm always trying to figure out, okay, let me take this course. Let me, you know, study that book because, you know, you, your thinking also has to change, right? So, oh, yes, you need absolutely. a different framework for 500 people versus 40 people. Uh, you know, you need, if you want to have a strategy for the product for the next three years, that's different from three months. So you really need to learn a lot of new approaches and frameworks and concepts that you can then apply. And that's, you know, that's, I think we, we have another 10 years of work and I think we will need to do another 10 years of change. No, absolutely. And to be entirely honest, I, I usually see myself, <clears throat> or at least here in Portugal, usually people say that, for instance, doctors, it's, they have a very challenging um, job because they are constantly kind of learning new things because mm-hmm. medicine is constantly evolving. But to be entirely honest, just like you said, if you take a look to, to the software engineering world and, you know, and even the way that we think about products, the way that we engage so the market, I, I believe that if you don't read at least one book per month or well, I think one book per month, I think it's more or less like a, a good average. I think you're, you're just going, going to get behind because there is always someone that is going to read, is going to learn something new, and that is going actually to kind of to reframe better situation, going to have a better approach, and probably is going to, to, to get there first and you. Um, so I really believe Correct. that you really need to make sure that you're always up to speed with everything that's happening. Correct. You're completely correct. And you know, it's, it's not easy when you're fresh out of school, you're used to learning a lot. So, you know, you're picking up new things a lot quicker. Yeah. <laughs> when you grow in your career, you know, you have a lot of other things to worry about. You know, maybe you're managing a team, uh, you know, maybe, you know, there's a lot of external factors that now you just not learn. You don't have the option to learn necessarily as fast anymore. So, but you have to then learn smarter and learn different things, of course. Yes. 
Uh, and, you know, I think for an engineer right now, it's not easy uh, because the pace of technology is so fast. Uh, think about it in our space, for example, you know, when we were talking to customers, we're always asking, do you have a data lake, right? Uh, because it's a fundamental piece of infra infrastructure, you know, for measuring all, all things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and let's say three years ago, maybe four years ago, when I was asking that question, the answer would always be, oh, we got some Hadoop stuff, right? Like Hortonworks or Cloudera or MapR. It would be one of those three. Now, nothing. You know, Hadoop was new in a way, but now it's all in the cloud. Uh, yes. You know, Amazon is delivering 27 new services every month or something. So just think about... <laughs> And there are more programming languages than ever before. Yes, absolutely. Think about the amount you have the amount you have to learn and the speed at which you have to learn these new things is is almost a little bit scary. Yes, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, again, everything is changing and, and happening so fast. It's not it's not easy for sure. Um, and we we've, we're talk, just talked about engineers um, and all these challenges that our engineers face. You know, to be make sure that they are up to speed, that they are uh, updated. You know, it's very easy to to be caught off guard and just kind of stay updated very very quick. Um, and obviously, we are talking about we are talking about the hard skills. So definitely. Soft skills are so very important for us. Um, in your perspective, what what do you value the most uh, in an engineer? So let's say that we have a software engineer that is listening to this show. Uh, maybe he's reconsider or thinking about moving to Belgium or to Poland. Maybe he would like to join Calibra. Um, so what do you value the most uh, when we talk about a software engineer? Whew. What do I value the most? Um... Obviously, I think it's a number of things, right? Obviously, uh, he or she has to be technically strong, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that doesn't mean uh, that you can write some algorithm the fastest, you know, or you can write it down on the whiteboard or that, you know, the intricacies of some programming language or, or framework the best. That's, that's not necessarily what I mean. Uh, you know, you, you want a strong... Uh, like a strong computer scientist who knows all the frameworks, who knows all the best practices, uh, who knows, you know, a programming language or two, isn't afraid to learn a new one also, isn't afraid to learn a new framework, so isn't afraid of that uh, change, but rather is happy to take it, right? This is like, oh, try something new, great. Um, and mo mostly that can apply it, you know, as, as a software. You're not looking for a professor, right? <laughs> Yes, indeed. You're looking for somebody who can actually take all that knowledge and skill and translate it into a software product or a service or what have you. Um, so this, the technical acumen is, is uh, very important. And then I, so, I also think the, um, uh, the, the openness to learn about the business problem like what is the problem you're solving? Because it's Absolutely. one thing to like play around with technology. That's super fun, but you're doing it for a certain reason, right? So yes. openness to learn about the business problem and really understand it, right? Because, you know, you don't need three layers of people to say to an engineer, hey, here, do this. No, if the engineer understands the problem, then, you know, they know best how to solve it. Uh, and then uh, I would say, communication uh, yeah. communication so there's 
you know, you do have lone wolf developers who can do magic things, right? Yeah. You know, maybe contributing to the kernel or, you know, figuring out the next crypto algorithm uh, or some kind of, uh, you know, encryption. It's very specialized, specialized, specialized things. But in general, when you're talking about regular most engineering, it's teamwork, right? Uh, there's a lot of other people you're working with. For example, in our company, we have front-end engineers, back-end engineers. Uh, we have QA people. We have documentation writers. Uh, we have product owners, which is a relative, relatively new role. We have product managers. We have the people from support. Uh, you know, and that's only in the R&D group that I'm speaking now. So there's a lot of other roles in the company. And you just have to, you know, you just have to be able to work with them and communicate with them. So I think that communication, that collaboration is a third. So technical acumen, uh, the uh, willingness to understand uh, and internalize the business problem, and then the communication and collaboration. These are three things that I would find most important. No, no, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy because definitely we are on the same page, you know. I love the way that we not only value hard skills and soft skills because they are definitely very important and they they are uh, they belong to the skill set of, of a talented engineer, but also the interest of, of understanding the business, right? Uh, because just like you mentioned, no one does engineering just for the sake of engineering or for the yeah. or for the sake of technology. It's actually about understanding the business, the customers, what are the problems that we are solving, right? Um, I actually, I went to a conference the other day and, and I heard of, uh, a sentence that it was just mind blowing to me. That was bring problems to engineers and not just decisions. Uh, and that's all, what it, this is all about, right? We, we want to make sure that software engineers are helping us to solve problems and to actually to address them on the best possible way to bring value to the customers, not just kind of just, hey, just, just code these few uh, lines of, of code because that's that's not just what exactly what is expected of them, right? I fully I fully agree with you there. If you if you can bring the engineers to the customer, then you have like the shortest communication distance. Absolutely. Um, you know, I I would say that we've not always been successful at this. We know this, right? We know that this is true, but we've not always been successful in this because as as we were scaling up, you know, we're we're trying to figure out all the roles and you know all the different parts of the organizations are scaling up at the same time. You have a whole marketing team that's scaling up. You have a sales team that's scaling up, like sales engineers who are also, sales engineers are also technically quite strong, right? So you can't, most of them, you can't bamboozle them. Right? <laughs> they actually have to take the software, however bad or good it is, right? Because it's never perfect. No. They have to take it and they're in front of the, you know, of the customer with uh, red cheeks because, you know, the button is making the software explode. So, uh, you know, and then you have the, the, the product organization, which at Colibra is, I, I always called it like the demand side, right? So the, the product managers manage the demand side. So they manage like, what is the most common demand across customers, what is most priority. Uh, and then you have the engineers and I always call them the supply side. They actually build uh, what needs to be built. And in, in, that, uh, in that growth, you know, we've, we've seen, Okay, if you, if you put too many layers in between to the engineer, then they're too far away from the problem. And then you have so, too many translation steps, like write a specification and then write this other document and then explain it again and have a meeting. And then you get to a point where the engineer almost, and now we have this, right, needs a product owner close by because there's a hundred questions you can ask in one day. 
right? Like micro decisions almost. Yeah. Um, but if you don't know the problem well enough, you need that product owner. Um, whereas if the engineer, you know, when we were smaller, the engineer would just go to the one customer and then, you know, you just, you're right there. Uh, and when, whenever, for example, when we have a big issue, when there's a customer like, this is a big issue, uh, your stuff is not working. We say, wait, 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 it's working. Why don't we come and take a look and see what's going on? And then when you dig in a little bit and it's an engineer doing this who built it, they can typically get to the, like the, the root cause or the solution so fast. Nobody else can do that. Uh, so it's, it's, I completely agree. Bring the problem as close to the engineer as is possible. Uh, the challenge is to um, how to do that in a scaling organization. Yes. Uh, so now we're at the point that we have the product managers and then we have the product owners, right? That the product owners are part of the engineering team and they're supposed to be like the contact point for the, for the engineer on the daily basis for the hundred micro questions. So they're, the, they're supposed to be the person who really knows the problem very well and then can work with the team to internalize the problem in that team. That's really couldn't agree more. No, perfect. Um, Stan, so we are pretty much almost at the end of the show. I have two questions Already? that I really would love to ask you. Um, so one of them is actually something that we, we didn't mention or we didn't discuss uh, so far. It's like the unicorn stage that you are right now. Um, so that that's pretty much amazing. Uh, uh, I don't know if everybody actually understands there are millions of startups over there. Uh, very few get to the scale-up stage and even fewer get to this unicorn uh, evaluation, which is something that obviously we, we almost should all of us have kind of a badge to wear with pride. Um, tell me one thing. So in terms of Calibra, um, when did you become a unicorn? Um, looking back, do you saw like one or two things that actually kind of, you know, that actually made a big, big impact for you to reach to, to this unicorn stage? Um, and what changed from that moment to, to today? Uh, so I think to, uh, so you have a few questions there, right? How do you get yeah. there? What changed yeah. uh, for us? Um, so first of all, I would say it's not a goal in itself, right? Mm. Uh, so don't go chasing unicorns. It's why, uh, but there are some benefits to it. So I'll talk about that, but how do you get there? It, I, I have a formula. The formula is really simple, right? It's revenue times multiple has to be bigger than $1 billion. And that's the formula that makes you a unicorn. And the multiple is when you get an investment, you know, the, the, the VC will work with you to say, okay, I will pay you five times your revenue or 10 times your revenue. And now there are crazy multiples, right? The, the Ubers and everything, you're talking about 60 and, and above. Whereas typically, you know, they used to say in the Bay Area, you would get a, a multiple of 15. That would be high. And, you know, somewhere else, maybe you would have the same company, but they would be in Europe. They would maybe get 10 as a multiple. Um, but, you know, the multiple you get is part negotiation, right? Because you're dealing with the VC. So you're negotiating. You say, no, it's 15. And he says, no, it's 13. So it's a negotiation. Uh, but it's also determined by the success of your business and the uh, uh, growth that you've gone through in your business and the growth that you can still get to. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you can grow 100% year over year, but if your limit is, you know, if, you're, if your market is a $5 million market, then, you know, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. Uh, so for us, 
the we uh, we have a recurring revenue model and a recurring revenue model is of course better to make success at the customer because you're more focused at it but it's also better for your uh, multiple so how to become a multiple is just focus on the business and right? focus on the business focus on a business that is high growth uh, that has a great uh, total addressable market uh, and that you can you know execute on to actually get right uh, that's how you, that's how you become a unicorn. You know, somebody still has to give you money, right? So in our case, uh, we were very happy to have Capital G Google come to us and say, "This was earlier in the year, at the beginning of the year. It's like here's money. We want to give you this money." Like, okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, because they Google, they are really the data company. They know everything mm -hmm. uh, because the the dossier they had on us the. Um, the, like the, the file. I was looking through this file. It was only 10 pages and they have a 20 page or 30 page document as well that we can look at. But I was looking through it and I was like, how do they know all this stuff about this? It's amazing how much they knew about us. Um, and, you know, so we're, we're happy that the investments from Capital G, because it's, that's not Google, Capital G is the uh, scale up arm of Alphabet. Mm -hmm. And Alphabet is the, like the mother company for Google. Yep. Uh, but it's the Google engineers who said, oh, look at Colibra. So, you know, we're very happy with that uh, support from Google. There's also a natural match with their strength in AI and whatever. Right? So it's, it, we're very happy with it. And it also gave us the unicorn status. So, you know, I always find it a little bit silly, honestly. Uh, I, I cannot wear it, but I bought this latex unicorn mask. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I, I, I would put it on, but uh, my colleague Fleur from marketing said, don't do this then, it is not allowed, so I'm not doing it. Um, so it's a bit silly, but it's, you know, it's a status symbol in a way, right? Yeah. But uh, what I liked about it is that before we were a unicorn, we were not known in Belgium. Now we are. So wow. what the unicorn status has given us, and this is not only true for Belgium, of course, but globally, it has given us a much bigger visibility, much broader exposure. Yeah. And, you know, that is good for business. Um, so what, what else did it change? Well, you know, it makes your company more visible, so it makes you more attractive, right? If you, yeah. we were talking about hiring of, of people or engineers, for example, you know, they if they want to, if they can work for a well-known name or a unicorn name, that's a lot more intriguing than working for a company that nobody has ever heard of so it does help with a number of things uh, and in that sense i'm happy i'm definitely happy about it great 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 um love that that answer um so I feel that we could, we could actually go with this on for more two hours or three. Uh, this show has been uh, pretty much amazing. I, I think definitely one of the best that we had so far. Um, I really like to to close the session with uh, with the same old question uh, that I believe that actually brings a lot of value to, to everyone that is listening to us. And that is, if you only had one advice that you could give to any startup that would like to, you know, to grow and to somehow aim to get to one, just one, like the biggest one that you could give, you know, uh, to get to aim, say, hey, wow, I would love to get to, to, the, to the stage where Colibri is right now. Um, you could only uh, give one to them. Which advice would that be? Whew, this is a trick question. Yeah, no, sorry for that. <laughs> one. Just one. There are so many things. I know. Um, <laughs> It's, it's going to sound very high level, right? Uh, it's going to sound very high level. 
but you need to know it, it takes time, right? Getting to a certain stage of business takes time. Nothing happens in six months. Uh, everybody's always like, oh, the overnight success that took 10 years, right? So it always takes time. So look at a three to five year window, right? That's a reasonable time frame, And look at uh, what you think is happening in that three to five year time frame. Uh, what you think you can realize in that time frame, you know, both technically as well as commercially, the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. So what can you get done? Uh, and what is your vision for that time frame as to what people will need, right? What will, what is the need and the evolution of the need? Ideally, there's a growth in the need. Yeah. Right? Um, that that is going to happen over the next three to five years, uh, and then build build and sell that, right? So identify a need, have a vision around the need, and build and sell that. You know, I, I'll, let me give some other context to this i think it's uh it's a quote from jeff bezos and he says you know don't build for what's changing but build for what's going to be the same for the next 10 years right because you know that this is going to be a constant need so this is going to be a great opportunity to build and sell that mm-hmm. uh, if we take another example just to, to stay in the same light so in the next three to five years what do i expect I expect that uh, the cloud is going to commoditize data management, right? So why? Because, you know, Microsoft and Google and uh, AWS, they're all battling each other for dominance to be like the operating system for the web. Yeah. So they're like, oh, all the developers build on me, build on me, right? So for the next three to five years, this is what's going to happen. And then you, if you see this ahead of you, so this is what's happening, and then you can sort of figure out, well, what will, what will Microsoft do and what will Amazon do? And what gaps are they leaving? And what yeah. breadcrumbs can I pick up? And then you can say, okay, uh, these breadcrumbs are out there. Well, I think I can actually pick up these three because I have the technical skills. I have the go-to-market skills. Maybe I can find a team that's interested in it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's, that's the one advice that I would give. See what's happening in the next three, five years, what's your vision around it, and then build and sell that. Mind-blowing. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Mary, um, I think that's it. Uh, I'm passing the ball back to you. Wow, such an awesome show. Was so much learning. Yeah, wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> One of the best, definitely. <laughs> so if you like this show, press the button like below. You have you can watch this and more at scaleupvalley.com and it's also available on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. So thank you for the unicorn (laughs) power today (laughs) and hope to see you soon. Thank you, Mary. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pedro. Bye. Bye.